0: chapter 23 of the green odyssey by philip jose former this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 23 two weeks later the yacht was scudding along under a 20 mile an hour wind it was high noon and everybody except the helmsman amra and miran was eating they were lunching on steaks carved from a huber, which Green had shot from the deck and which had been cooked on the fireplace, placed under a hood immediately aft of the small foredeck. There was no lack of food, despite the fact that the yacht had not been stocked. Fortunately the savages who owned it had not bothered to remove the several pistols and keg of powder and sack of balls from its locker. With this Green killed enough deer and hubers to keep everybody well fed. Amra supplemented their protein diet with grass which her culinary art turned into a halfway decent salad. At times, when they neared a grove of trees, Green would stop the yacht. They would go foraging for berries and for a large plant which could be beaten until soft, mixed with water, kneaded and baked into a kind of bread. Once a grass cat dashed out from behind a tree, making straight for Inzoks. Green and Miran, both firing at the same time, crumpled it within ten yards of the little blonde. The grass cats, big cheetah-like creatures with long slim legs built for running, were only a peril when the party left the yacht. Though fully capable of leaping aboard when the roller was in movement, they never did. Sometimes they might pace it for a mile or so, then they would contemptuously walk away green wished he could say the same for the dire dogs these were almost as large as the grass cats and ran in packs of from six to twelve sinister looking with their gray and black spotted coats pointed wolfish ears and massive jaws they would run up to the very wheels howling and snapping with their monstrous yellow fangs then one would be inspired with the idea of leaping aboard and finding out how the occupants tasted up he would come, easily sailing over the railing. Usually, the occupants would discourage him with a well placed thrust from a spear or an amputating swing of a cutlass. Sometimes they missed, and he would land on the deck, which enabled the sailors to try again with better success. Back over the rail his body would go, back to his fellows, many of whom would stop the chase to devour their dead comrade. Those who persisted in the hunt would then try their luck bounding upon the yacht, snarling hideously, trying to scare their quarry into a complete paralysis and sometimes succeeding. No lives were lost to the dire dogs, but almost everybody bore scars. Only Lady Luck managed to stay unscathed. Every time she heard their distant howling she scaled the mast and would not come down until the danger was over. Today they'd not been bothered everybody relaxed chattering and munching happily the unexciting but nutritious meat of the hober. miran stood upon the foredeck sighting on the sun through his sextant this also had been found in the locker along with some charts of the zormidor though the charts had had their locations marked in an alphabet unknown to anybody aboard miran had been able to compare them in his mind to the charts he left on the bird of fortune he had crossed out the foreign names and put in names in the Killerzon alphabet. He'd done this only at the insistence of Green, who didn't trust Miran to translate for him and wanted to be able to read the maps himself. Not only that, he'd forced the fat merchant to teach both him and Amra how to use the clumsy and complicated but fairly accurate sextant. A few days later, after Green and his wife had begun to study the navigational instrument, there occurred an accident that forced Green to take further measures to safeguard himself. He and Milan had been standing at the stern, ready with their pistols, while Amra steered the yacht toward a group of hoopers. They were going through their usual maneuver of running down a herd until the exhausted animals could be overtaken. Just as they neared an orange-colored stallion, galloping furiously, Green raised his pistol. At the same time he was vaguely aware that Miran had also sighted, but had stepped back behind and to one side of him. Sensitive about wasting any of the valuable ammunition, Green had turned his head to warn Miran not to shoot unless he, Green, missed. It was then that he saw the muzzle swerving toward the back of his head. He ducked fully expecting to get his brains blown out before he could shout a warning. But Miran, seeing his reaction, lowered the muzzle and puzzledly asked Green what he was doing. Green didn't answer. Instead he took the gun away from Miran's limp grip and silently put it away in the locker. Neither he nor the merchant ever referred to the incident, nor did Miran ask why he was not permitted to take part in any shooting thereafter. That convinced Green that the fellow had fully intended to shoot him, and then claimed to the others that it had been an accident. To forestall any more attempts at accidents, Green told Amra that if he were to disappear some dark night she was to see that a certain person was shot and thrown overboard. He did not name the certain person, but he mentioned his sex, and as Miran was the only other man on the yacht, There was no doubt about to whom he referred. Thereafter Miran was most cooperative, always smiling and joking. However, Green caught him now and then with frowning brows and a thoughtful expression. He was either fingering his stiletto or the bag of jewels he carried inside his shirt. Green could imagine that he was planning something for the day they reached Astoria. Now on this day, two weeks after they'd left the island, Miran was shooting the sun, and Green was waiting until he was through so he could check on him. If his calculations were correct the yacht should be directly east of Astoria two hundred miles. If they maintained their average rate of twenty-five miles an hour they'd reach the windbreak in a little over eight hours. The fat merchant quit looking through the eyepiece of his instrument and walked to the cockpit Where his charts and papers were." Green took the sextant from him and made his own observations, then checked with Miran in the narrow and crowded cockpit. "'We agree,' said Green, indicating with a pencil tip a round scarlet spot on the chart. "'We should be sighting this island within four hours.' "'Yes,' replied Miran. "'That's an old landmark. It has been there a hundred miles due east of Astoria since before my grandfather's time. It was once a roaming island, but it long ago quit moving and has stayed in that one spot. That is nothing unusual. Every captain knows of these fixed islands, scattered all over the Zormidor, and every now and then we have to add a new red mark to our charts because one of the roamers has settled down." He paused, then added a statement that set Green's heart to beating fast. The unusual thing about this island is that it did not stop of its own accord. It was halted by the magic of the Astorians, and it has been kept in that one place ever since by their magic. "'What do you mean?' asked Green eagerly. Midan's round, pale blue eyes stared at him blankly. "'What do you mean? What do I mean? I mean just what I said, nothing more.' "'I mean, what magic did they contrive to halt this roamer?' why they put up certain peculiar towers in its path and when the island began going backwards to get out of the trap and go around it they moved other towers to block its retreat these towers moved fast on many well-greased wheels once the circle was completed the island couldn't move nor has it been able to move since these towers intrigue me how did the Astorians know how to halt these islands and if they've succeeded with one why not with the others i do not know perhaps because the towers are huge and costly and don't move too fast perhaps it is not worth while to the astorians to capture many as for their knowledge i think they got it from their ancestors It was their great-great-great and then some grandfathers who originally built Astoria in the middle of the plain and protected it from being crushed by these islands, by placing these many towers all around their city. But it cost them much wood and time, and perhaps they lost interest after that." Miran indicated a castle inked in beside the red spot. This castle means that a military or naval fortification has been built there on the island. It is the furthest eastern garrison of the Astorians. When we come within sighting distance of it, we are supposed to report. Of course, if you wish to avoid it, we may sail to the north or south and swing around it. But then we will have to report to the windbreak master of the city itself. Then they are rather hostile to captains who have failed to have their papers checked at the fort of Shemdug even if the craft is such a small and weak one as this the historians are a suspicious people yes thought green and i'll bet that you intend to inflate their distrust with certain information about me he rose from the cockpit and at the same time he heard amra hail him from her station at the helm island on the horizon she said and many glittering white objects placed before it green refrained from comment but he had a hard time concealing his excitement which grew with every turn of the wheels he paced back and forth stopping now and then to shade his eyes and look long at the white towers finally as they got so near that he could no longer be mistaken about their size or the details of their peculiar structure he could contain himself no longer He whooped with joy, and kissed Amra on the cheek, and danced around and around the foredeck, while the women stared with embarrassment and concern, and the children giggled, all wondering if he'd gone mad. Spaceships! Spaceships! he howled in English. Dozens of them! It must be an expedition! I'm saved! Saved! Spaceships! Spaceships! End of chapter 23